Indoor dining is back, Juneteenth is an official state holiday, and the New York primary elections are upon us. At the risk of stating the obvious, it's been a busy week in the newsroom. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top stories in the Times Union. It's yet another sign that things are opening up after the pandemic. We'll take a look at how the editorial board made endorsements for the state's primary election. It really is a case where the law is worse than the offense. And we'll hear the voices of a revolution. So I have to be optimistic as much as possible. What will the world look like a year from now? If this is what we were able to do in a month. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what happened at the Times Union this week. I'm here with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. Casey, this week uh, we have a new holiday here in New York State. Tell us more about it. Yeah, for for a a large number of public employees, on Wednesday, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that Juneteenth will be uh, celebrated as a paid holiday for state employees. We, of course, have a lot of those here in the Capital Region. And just subsequent to that, Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan said that Juneteenth, which this year falls on this coming Friday, will be a paid holiday for city workers as well. Juneteenth is not exactly the date of uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, but it is rather the celebration of the news of emancipation, making it as far west as Texas, essentially when a Union general announced that all enslaved persons were, were now free. It's viewed really across the nation as sort of the holiday marking emancipation. Now, I should say, I call it a new holiday, but it's been a holiday for a long time. It's just never been official. But in Albany, we've been celebrating it for decades, right? Yeah. I mean, really, I I don't know exactly, but I think it's fair to say that since the Civil Rights Movement, which is now, gosh, going back 60 years, it has become increasingly a date to mark emancipation and of course, to remember the damage done uh, by slavery, specifically to, to black people in this nation. It, like MLK Day, it's a date to, to look back, look at this, you know, the tragic, brutal history of, of chattel slavery in this nation and around the world for that matter. Also in the news, uh, big news this, this week is the primary races, the primary election. Uh, we've got a couple local races that are a little contentious. Do you want to kind of give us the 35,000 foot view? <laughs> it, does, it doesn't feel like a 35,000 foot view, believe me. But yeah, primary day is coming up on Tuesday. But of course, early voting has begun. And in addition to that, a lot more people this year because of the pandemic are using absentee ballots. Despite that, in what I think it's fair to say is kind of a hottest regional race around here, and that's the race for um, Albany County District Attorney, there was some, I think it's fair to say, kind of late-breaking news. 
Rob Gavin on Saturday uh, reported that an Albany police detective had made allegations that Matt Toporowski, who is the Democratic challenger to incumbent DA David Soares, had allegedly used racial slurs in an incident from December 2013. Toporowski denies it. Two other people who were at the scene say that they did not hear any slurs like that. The detective, however, was named on the record. And it was a story that came very late in this election cycle. Unfortunately, reporters do not control when people uh, tell us things. And in a follow-up to that, Rob Gavin reported uh, that Toporowski, who has been claiming that he was never disciplined when he worked for about 15 months, I believe it was, in David Soares' office back in the period uh, from 2013 until 2015, that he was never disciplined and he was never asked to leave. David Soares' chief deputy named David Rossi told Rob Gavin that Toporowski was lying about that. That's the word that he used that he in fact was suspended for a week in the spring of 2014, and that finally in 2015, Rossi asked for his resignation. Now, Toporowski rather awkwardly responded to this by saying, well, I was asked to take a vacation. I didn't consider that um, official discipline. And well, yes, Rossi suggested that I should leave. I did not consider that to be a formal request for my resignation. You know, readers can can look at those stories and, and judge for themselves, but it's a lot of late action in a primary race, and reporters don't like it uh, any more than the candidates do. But unfortunately, that is the situation that we are in. It's a very complicated one, that's for sure, and one that Rob and others will be following over the next couple of days, for sure. Another thing that's happening in the region, restaurants are opening as part of phase three reopening that we've been given the go ahead. What's uh, what's kind of going on with that? Yeah, for the first time, people are eating indoors, albeit socially distanced. The restaurants have to have reduced capacity, but it's yet another sign that things are opening up after the pandemic. Uh, the governor, who has become famous for more than three months of, of daily briefings, um, either in Albany or around the state, on the state response to COVID-19, has said that after this week, he's, he's going to curtail them, that they've served their purpose. We are now ready to, to kind of move on to other business. So it's pretty amazing. They have become not just uh, an Albany or a statewide must-watch, but really around the nation. I dare say I'm going to miss them as well. <laughs> this week, uh, we had a very special event. Do you want to tell us more about it? Yeah, the Times Union's High School Sports Awards um, is always a really fun event in June. This is, I believe, the third year that we've done it. And uh, basically, uh, our sports department selects sort of the best athletes, uh, you know, winter, fall, spring and brings them in, honors them, talks about their accomplishments. This year is sad in, in a lot of ways, but um, way, way down on the list of, of tragic, but still very hard, is the, you know, the spring season for so many high school athletes, including seniors, was just not there. It was, it was canceled. So we decided to go ahead with honoring the athletes who did manage to kind of get their seasons uh, under their belt. We, of course, had to do it virtually. We did it via Zoom. We had a VIP speaker, and that was Dottie Pepper, the legendary golfer and now golf correspondent. 
Um, and she spoke about, about dealing with adversity and how we get through these things um, together. And that's one of the things that, that sports teaches us. I encourage you guys to really look at this summer as a chance to reset, a chance to get better, to be better to people. And Bill Douglas sang a fantastic song that has become a tradition. This time it was a parody of My Way that would have brought down the house had there been an actual physical house to bring down. All the games were filled with competition without equal. The winter packed with contests that drew lots of fans and kept the seats full. And James Allen, who is our preeminent high school sports correspondent, presented the awards and uh, he does a great job. The, the level of, of knowledge from all across the region is, is really remarkable. So it, it, was, it was a fun event. Indeed, Bill's song was very memorable. A year that in the end may motivate or still inspire us, but let's all agree we've seen enough coronavirus. All right, Casey, thanks for checking in with us. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks, Jess. Happy Juneteenth. This week, the Times Union editorial board endorsed two candidates running for local public office in the Capital Region ahead of the June 23rd primary. The board typically does not endorse candidates in primary elections, unless the primary election is likely to decide the general election. In both races, Democratic incumbents have primary challengers, but face no declared challengers in the general election of any other party. In both races, the editorial board has endorsed the incumbent. But that's where the similarities between those two races end. I caught up with editorial editor Jay Jognowitz this week to talk about the process of making an endorsement and why the editorial board chose to endorse incumbent 108th District Assemblyman John McDonald over Albany County Legislator Sam Fine and incumbent Albany County District Attorney David Soares over Matt Toporowski. The editorial board has made its endorsements and just without preamble, just let's go into who you guys endorsed. Part of the criteria we use, and we explain this in the, in the 108th uh, district race, is it kind of behooves a challenger to explain why a person doesn't deserve to keep the job that they've had. It's not that I think that you know, elected officials have entitlement to the, to the job once they're elected, but if they're doing a good job, then they're doing a good job, and that's a, that's a good thing. We want them to do good jobs, and if they're not, then that's the case the the challenger has to make. It's not enough really to just say, I could do a better job and I promise this and I promise that. So I like Sam Fine. I thought he was a great candidate. I think he's got some good ideas. He's a progressive uh, sort of guy. Um, he's got a nice story uh, that, that's kind of fun. His grandfather on his, I want to say maternal side, was fighting for health care, uh, universal health care, which was strange because my grandparents were just barely learning the language. So when I hear somebody... <laughs> Talking about their grandfather fighting for universal health care, I picture my old first generation uh, off the boat uh, from Poland or Israel, you know, grandparents. And it's like, no, his, grand his grandfather was fighting for this in the 1960s. But uh, so you have a nice story. But the thing is, is that John McDonald, we, we felt has done a, done a good job, to some degree, a unique voice in the legislature as the only, maybe the only healthcare professional, certainly the only, as he put it, registered healthcare professional. I mean, there may be people in the healthcare industry. We just have found him very engaged, particularly on uh, the opioid crisis, 
small businessman. He has a good sense of, uh, you know, the difficulties of that, which is probably something you want to see in the legislature. And it's good to see it on the on the Democratic side. I think a lot of people on the Republican side are very sensitive to business. It's good to see that on both sides of the aisle. So for all those reasons, John got our endorsement. The DA's race was a little bit harder to decide. Take us through how you came to the decision to endorse the current incumbent DA. I thought both candidates were good candidates. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for the fact that David Soares had a lot to overcome to get the job in the first place. And, you know, sometimes, you know, over the years, you know, once you're in the establishment, you come to be seen as the establishment. You know, so he's got a sense, I think, from his perspective of what it takes to do the job. We haven't always agreed with him on that. We've had some differences of opinion on, on certain things with him and certain cases. And we've been impatient on some cases, like the Luke Deere case, the case involving uh, the breakup of a party and police, uh, alleged police brutality and so forth. We feel that that is kind of taking too long. Um, and we also feel that on cases involving citizens and police, where there's allegations of abuse, we're not talking about a police uh, officer who commits a crime off duty. I, I think the DA is perfectly capable of handling those cases. We're talking about cases where we're talking about official misconduct um, in some form or another. On those cases, we feel, and his challenger felt, argued that they should, the prosecutor should handle, hand these off to a special prosecutor so there's no conflict of interest when prosecutors have to deal with police every day to make cases. You know, Soares, you know, like any other candidate, especially someone with a record, you know, who's been in office, um, has both pluses and minuses. Um, and we, you know, we look at those. And then, you know, we looked at Matt Toporowski, and uh, we thought in some ways, strong candidate. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about more um, justice, more rethinking of the criminal justice system. And, you know, he hit a lot of the right notes. Um, so this was, you know, shaping up to be, I think, a, um, I think it's fair to say it was, it was a, a difficult decision for us. For better or worse, uh, that decision was all but made for us. <laughs> what tipped the scales there was, um, uh, you know, there were allegations, and, and, I, and I'll get to the nuance of that in a minute, but, uh, you know, there are allegations that he had been disciplined and that he had been uh, either fired or uh, told to resign. He was uh, evading uh, the, um, the questions. He was, he was dissembling. He was, he was not being truthful. And ultimately, I think he was lying. And boy, that's a bad way to start, you know, for someone, especially as we pointed out in the editorial, for somebody who their job is, is about, or we hope it's about, being engaged in a search for the truth. And that search for the truth uh, can decide a person's freedom or not. Um, whether they're going to be in jail or they're going to go free. This is just not a way to start a career as a district attorney. And, and we could not endorse someone on that basis. So that just, you know, made the difference for us. You know, when I look back at it, just, you know, looking at it as, you know, a what if kind of situation, is there a better way that Toporowski could have handled that? I don't want to liken this to Watergate or anything. I don't want to put a gate on this. Because I hate that, that, <laughs> oh, that, that makes such a great headline, doesn't it? <laughs> Topogate. But, you know, it, it really is a case where the lie is worse than the offense. Um, I could see a scenario where a deft politician could have said, a deft anyone, a deft candidate could have said, I did make a mistake on, on letting a photograph, on, we were goofing around. So he could have just, you know, found a graceful way to say, I put something on the internet or somebody put something on the internet for me. 
it was a photo, it was inappropriate. You know, there's a lot of private moments that people have, and I'm sure my opponent has had them too, but they didn't end up on the internet. Was it juvenile? Yes. Was Have I learned from it? Absolutely. He could have done all that. And then the only other question would have been his, um, his firing or his dismissal or his, the request to resign, whatever you want to call it, the order to resign. You know, that was a simple thing. And he finally got to the truth or he got to the politic uh, statement in his, when he finally did put out a statement on this, acknowledging it. All he had to do was say from the beginning that, you know, uh, we had some differences of opinion on the handling of cases. I felt it's a central part of my candidacy is that they overpunish and overprosecute, overprosecute and overpunish. And that was an issue for us while I was in the office. And um, we parted ways. That's all he had to say. And I think he would have avoided all the problems that went with this. And this would have not have been as decisive an issue as it turned out to be. We didn't call him back at that point. We certainly could have done that. We could have said, you know, especially since we're doing conference calls anyway, um, not conference calls, but we're doing uh, Zoom uh, editorial board meetings for the moment. We probably could have brought him back if we had more time. But another thing that played into our decision here was early voting. You know, we really didn't feel we had the luxury of time. There are people who are casting ballots right now. And we did not feel, looking at this, that a candidate who was not truthful uh, from the moment he was asked the question the first time, was going to get our endorsement. So that was that was pretty much the end of that discussion. Sure. Now, in terms of responses to the endorsements, I mean, what do you? How do you respond to folks who say, "Oh, the paper's just propping up the incumbent," or "The paper's just doing this or that or the other thing"? Like, how do you how do you respond to that? I think we are sensitive to the idea that we've been concerned. And I think we've expressed it editorially over the years that, you know, about the advantages of incumbency. We don't like people abusing their incumbency by using taxpayer paid regular mail to send out what amounts to campaign literature. There's a lot of assemblymen uh, that I've noticed over the years who just coincidentally happen to send out their, their constituent mail right around election time, you know, because they only could do so much of it. So that's annoying. Don't have a lot of patience for politicians that do that. But, you know, if a person's doing, they're in the job, they've proven that they can do a good job, I will give them that advantage of incumbency um, that they have a track record. And I'll even, you know, acknowledge that, you know, there are some things that, you know, maybe some judgment calls that they might make that we might say, well, you know, we have a disagreement on that. But when we look at the totality of a person's service, we think that's, you know, they've proven themselves in the job. So is that an advantage and are we buying into that and giving them a leg up? I think that's a trope when people throw that at us. You know, they'll say we endorse all incumbents, um, which I, we don't usually. I, we're sensitive to it. That's, I think that's the best I can say to answer that. We, we are sensitive to it. We keep it in mind. We do look at talent, you, you know, upcoming talent, people that really come in with good ideas. And, um, you know, and there are some people who really are just placeholders in in politics that you know are there because they have their reliable votes they have good staffs that do decent constituent service but you know they're they're just going along for the ride at this point and uh you know counting counting the years till i don't know retirement or death one or the other you know, write their book right right exactly um you know and those are the one those are the incumbents we we really hope somebody good runs against them and when they do we we tend to endorse them. Well, listen, I don't want to take any more of your time. You got right. stuff to do, but thank you so much for giving me a little look inside this process. It's been fascinating. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. After the break, 
The powerful voices of three generations speak out against systemic racism. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. The fight for racial justice is not a new one, but it has gained significant momentum in the capital region and around the country in recent weeks. The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others at the hands of police sparked mainly peaceful but emotionally charged protests. Who are the faces of local racial justice activism? As reporter Masara Makati found, there are multiple generations of faces, each with their own profound story to tell. I split them up into three generations. So essentially people who were born in the 40s-ish, maybe the 50s, but you know, lived through the civil rights movement. The second generation was more middle-aged activists who kind of hit their prime, hit their peak when the Black Lives Matter movement first started back in uh, 2013. And then the third uh, generation was younger people, teenagers, and people in their young 20s who are just starting to join the movement that we're seeing today. For the eldest generation, Masara talked to longtime local activists Alice Green, Barbara Smith, and Ceci Alfonso. It was such a privilege to hear their stories, and it was so incredible to me. These women, which, side note, very cool that they're all women, are just walking embodiments of history. Alice Green talked about how she said that she felt like she embodied mass incarceration and reconstruction and Jim Crow and slavery. She held all of this within her. With that background, it gave me a sense of what my responsibility was in this world. Never got over the fact that my great-grandmother was somebody's property. Alice Green talking about you know, she was in Washington, D.C. after the day that MLK was assassinated. I wanted to see the cherry blossoms in D.C. I'd never been to D.C. and I heard about the cherry blossoms. <laughs> Hopped on the bus to go to D.C. I ended up in D.C. at the exact moment that things were on fire. I mean, it was the up- uprising uh, after the killing of Martin Luther King. It was a terrible time, but it taught me so much about what people are willing to do to gain their freedom. Barbara Smith remembers when Emmett Till died. I was eight years old, but people talked about, like, his name was mentioned around the dinner table or wherever we were. So we knew that there was somebody named Emmett Till, and we knew something bad had happened to him, and we knew that it made our, our, our family members very, very upset. Ceci Alfonso talked about, you know, when she heard MLK's I Have a Dream speech and how that was in a moment of reckoning for her and how she used to walk down 116th Street. She lived in Spanish Harlem and she could listen to Malcolm X speaking. Those of us who were of color were trying to navigate a society that had already defined our roles. They lived through this moment of excitement and change There was an oppressive air to the society then, but there were also so many oppressive laws 
that their generation fought very hard to change. Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, etc. It's very difficult for my generation. So that is one of the things that in speaking and taking a look at how we're responding to how we got here today and how we're responding to the uprising in this country is the same thing. It's inequity. It's unfairness. In the uprising in the 60s, it was the same issue. It was Hell no. This is deplorable. Well, history is cyclic. History does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. I think that given my age group, given all the things I've seen, given how politically active I've been for decades and involved, I can see the parallels, but I also see uh, the differences. And one of the things I would say about this period the scale. The scale is unprecedented. After spending hours on the phone with the women who saw the civil rights era firsthand, Masara moved on to the voices of the next generation, the middle generation. She spoke to local activists Sean Young and Jamaica Miles, both now in their 40s. I think the interesting thing about that middle generation is that they are really living through systemic racism. So whereas the older generation, you saw that they lived through the Jim Crow era, this middle-aged generation, you have Sean Young, who got caught up in mass incarceration, which disproportionately impacts Black men. Research has shown that one in three black men will end up incarcerated in their lifetime as opposed to one in nine white men. We have to, I think, as a community, do the things that generally make us uncomfortable for us to make change. We have to begin to think about doing things that we're not comfortable with if we really truly want change. Jamaica Miles, an attribute, I guess you could say, or an experience of systemic racism that she had multiple, but one that she really advocates against is education. So she saw how through the education system, not only was there not adequate funding for the schools that she would send her kids to because of the issues with the foundation aid formula and how much money the state owes these schools, but also, you know, discrimination against parents, discrimination against her children. And when I went to the teacher and I said, listen, um, no, she came to me. She came to me and said, um, she won't sit still. And I was mm. like, yeah, she's bored because you're not giving her anything that she doesn't already know. And she goes, no, it's, I don't think it's that. I think she has ADHD. And they tested my daughter in first grade. So, like, there was that. And then, you know, as she got older, it was if um, there was an altercation with another student, the other student was white, it automatically was, well, your daughter. And I'm like, no. And the teacher just can't admit or can't believe that her daughter could be advanced and instead insists that she's ADHD. Um, Jamaica has seen dark-skinned parents get the cops called on them when they show up to school. This generation, I felt like, really embodied experiences of systemic racism, from police brutality to mass incarceration to education to healthcare. You're seeing them live those experiences that Alice Green referenced, that 
her generation could lay that foundation, getting rid of those oppressive laws. But there are so many more indirect ways that racism has seeped into day-to-day life. And so, again, the middle-aged generation, though, I mean, A, they're very appreciative of the generation that came before them. They rely on that generation a lot as they move through their advocacy. There's a lack of optimism in the community already because the system has consistently failed them, right? So I have to be optimistic as much as possible. What will the world look like a year from now if this is what we were able to do in a month with consistent pressure, building and growing of unity and and action? I almost feel optimistic that my youngest, if all could go, you know, seemingly, (laughs) that maybe this baby who's going to be three in less than two weeks that maybe he won't have to be carrying the torch for us. The youngest generation of activists Masara talked to were born in the 21st century. Alicia Clemente and Samantha Ivey are teenaged activists in the community. The younger generation, again, they they were born into the struggle. Alicia her first protest that she went to, she was eight weeks old. What like really like stood out to me the most was probably George Floyd's death. It it just felt different and the death was different. I've never like heard of a death like that. And I think it just like really affected me in a different way, but I, I didn't take it like with anger and sadness. I more took it to where I felt like I had to speak on it. So I would use art or a different type of coping stuff so I could, like, move forward and not, like, I mean, it's 100%. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to have feelings. I think what I did to handle it is just I just used my creative outlets that I have to, like, really, like, open my mind up so I wasn't as scared or as sad. Alicia is 15 years old, and she is out there on the streets right now leading protests taking the megaphone and giving impassioned speeches about racial justice and, you know, all the ways that her community has been discriminated against. I definitely want to speak out for certain teenagers and certain kids that are too afraid to speak out. And I feel like it's completely safe and okay to express how you feel. And I want to be that type of person that tells people, like, it's okay. Like, you can talk about how you feel. You can talk about what's right, what's wrong. Samantha Ivy also she's 18 and she is also taking this leadership role. She was one of the the organizers of the Clifton Park rally which brought out 2000 people. So so these are young leaders. Now for them let's rewind it to Barbara Smith remembering when Emmett Till died. Um, or Alice Green remembering when MLK was assassinated. For these girls Alicia and Samantha it was Freddie Gray, it was Trayvon Martin, it was Tamir Rice, it was all of these Black deaths that happened when they were probably about in middle school. And so up until that point in their lives, they knew that there was racism, they knew that there was racial injustice, but those deaths were their first kind of shock to the system. They came of age during the Black Lives Matter movement the same way Barbara and Alice and Ceci came of age during the civil rights movement. So you're seeing where these young 
women are at now, 15 and 18, and leading these protests, imagine where they will be decades from now. I've, it's it's really exciting for me to think about it. I mean, they're probably going to be, can I swear on this? Can I say they're going to be badass? <laughs> they're probably going to be badass. I mean, you know, decades from now, they're going to be, you know, the next Barbara Smith, if not cooler than her. And AOC will be bragging about endorsements from them <laughs> decades from now. <laughs> You can read reporter Masara Makati's story on these voices and many others at timesunion.com. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. And stay cool out there.